Well, a few days ago, I got on the roof of the church. Um, but I, I got permission ahead of time from Benny Ortiz, uh, the director of the facilities here, and I took, I took a few pictures I wanted to show you. This is from the roof of the church, and this is looking north. Uh, you can see the, um, the two big towers on the corner of Milwaukee and California. So this is looking north. And then let's look to the next. This is looking east. You can see the, you can see the city line there. Uh, looking east, there's our parking lot. There's an old Subaru in that parking lot. Uh, and now let's look, another, let's look at another one. This is looking south. And let's keep looking. This is looking west. The sun was setting. Uh, you can kind of see the shadow of the mission home there. McLean. And then I tried to take a panorama uh, of just from up there looking all around. Why, am I sh- why did I take those pictures? Because, number one, I wanted to get on the roof of the church. Duh, I've always wanted to be up there, and this was a perfect opportunity. But number two, this morning I want to ask the question, how do we see our surroundings? We're, we're currently in a, in a sermon series, we have a few more weeks left, about how Christians relate to the culture around us. It's called Christians and Culture. How do we relate the culture around us. And I'm here to tell you this morning that how we relate to the culture around us starts with and is driven by how we see. What do we see when we see places all around us? How do we feel? How do we feel when we walk through the Logan Square, how do we feel about being in this location where God has placed us? How do we see our surroundings? How do we see this culture? We look down our noses at the people around us. Do we, do we feel resentment? Or do we even see people? Or do we mimic what we see? See, how we relate to the culture around us really is driven by how we see our surroundings. That's what I want to look at this morning, and we're going to look at that from the perspective of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. Last week, uh, Kerwin led us through the first part of Jonah, and today we're going to look at the second part of Jonah. Jonah, chapter 3 and chapter 4. So if you're able, I want to invite you to turn there, if you can. Jonah, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And we're going to learn from Jonah and Nineveh about how we see our surroundings. Let's dive in. What we'll do is um, I encourage you to follow along if you can. But what I'll do is I'll retell uh, the events uh, of these two chapters. And then we'll, we'll look at what this is, how this is guiding our response this morning. Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4. There he is, washed ashore like a storm-tossed wooden plank, his clothes like 
tattered rags, waterlogged, his face pressed into the sand. I think you might know him. His name is Jonah. He had ran from God. He had gotten on a boat and went the opposite direction of what God had told him. And he, on the boat, he had told the sailors to throw him into the sea. And then a fish had swallowed him. And he spent three days, three days, inside the belly of that fish. Imagine utter darkness inside this stomach. I mean, growing up, the picture I have in my mind when I think of Jonah in the belly of a whale is like, I think I must have seen this from a Sunday school book growing up, but it's like this big room, and Jonah's in there, and he's sitting on a stool, and he has a little fire in front of him that he somehow made, and it's all lit up. Either that or I'm confusing him with Pinocchio. I'm not sure. But when you think about it, he was he's probably squeezed into that belly. Darkness all around. There's no windows down there. All he's hearing is the sound of the fish itself and the ocean around him. It smells like dead fish in there. The stomach acid covering his skin. Can you imagine? He didn't know he was going to get spit out three days down there. And all of a sudden, he's regurgitated. He finds himself back dry land. And all of a sudden, the face around him is open and the light of day shining on him. You imagine. It must have felt like a new chance at life. It really was. He had probably come close to death as possible. Now he's experiencing the closest thing possible to death. It was chance at life all over. Second chance. In fact, that's how chapter 3 is set up. That's how chapter 3 comes to us. God comes to Jonah with almost verbatim what he said to him in chapter 1. It's like a redo. It's like after, Jesus, after Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, had denied Jesus three times before his death. And then after Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus came to him three times and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It was a redo. Now, so now the Lord is coming to Jonah with those exact same words and says to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against them the message that I tell you. You see, first when Jonah heard that, he had fled in the opposite direction. Now, it seems like he's a new man. He does exactly what God tells him to do. He, God said, arise and go. So Jonah arose and goed. Exactly what he did. He went to Nineveh. Set his face towards the people who were arch enemies of Israel. People known for their utter brutality. For their gruesome practices in war. These were violent, violent people. Set his face to going to that great city. It was a huge, huge city. Scholars say that the area was probably 55 miles long which is why it would take three days 
to walk through it. So there's Jonah. And on the very first day, he hadn't even... He hadn't even gone through the whole city. On the very first day, he begins to proclaim his message, the message that God told him. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his message. Five words in the Hebrew. We don't know if this is a condensed version of his message, but this was the core of his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Can you imagine declaring that to people so violent, their enemies, to a city filled with people who are brutal and gruesome? Yet 40 days in Nineveh. You know, uh, if there were churches back then, Jonah probably would have been a part of Bad News Bible Church. Uh, Here we are, folks. We've been given the good news. We're part of Good News Bible Church. And here we see Jonah sharing this message. How about us? So he shares the message. I'm not quite sure how he thought people would respond, but something strange started to happen. People started coming from every direction to hear what he was saying, to hear this bad news message. And all of a sudden he sees people putting on sackcloth and and crying out to God. Maybe they're thinking, wait, 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 wait. The message isn't immediate destruction. The message is 40 days. Maybe we have a chance. Let's do whatever we can. And they put on sackcloth and they start fasting and crying out to God. And, And soon enough, the word travels all the way to the king. The king hears about it. Sitting up on his throne. And we just see him get all the way to the ground. Covers himself in ashes. And he takes off his royal robe, and he puts on sackcloth. Basically a burlap sack. And, and there he is, humbling himself. And he calls to one of his court officials, come here. Spread the word. Let everybody know. I want every single person in this city, and, and not only the people, but even the animals, be dressed in sackcloth. For the animals, I'm not talking about those sweater things and the booties, but like sackcloth. I don't think those things are of God. Um, sackcloth. And I, I don't want anybody, no people, no animals to taste anything or drink anything. I, I, I need us all to fast. And not only that, we've got to stop what we're doing. What he says. We've got to stop this violence and just cry out to God mightily. Cry out to God urgently. And then he says, who knows? God may turn 
Isn't that interesting? He recognizes that he can't control God's response by his prayers. He can't manipulate God. That's not what this is about. This is something truly coming from his heart. Who knows? God may turn. So they did that. Ten days went by. Twenty days went by. Thirty days went by. Forty days went by. Nothing happened. God saw their heart. He had mercy. Can you imagine that 41st day? Like there there must have been rejoicing all throughout the city. God had had mercy on them. Can you imagine Jonah? I mean, this must have been the best day of his life, right? Like God had used him as an instrument for this entire city to turn to God. Isn't that amazing? He must have been just like, how great is our God. Right? Now, look at Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah is furious. He, he cries out to God in prayer. He says, God, see, this is what I told you. This is why I fled from you in the first place, because I know you're a gracious God and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And, oh, God, would you just take my life from me? Because I would rather die than see these people. Whoa. It's an interesting insight into why Jonah fled in the first place, isn't it? You know, growing up, I thought it was because the the Ninevites were so intimidating. Like, I mean, you should read about what these people did to their enemies. It is absolutely terrifying. So I just thought he was afraid. I would be. That's not why he fled. He fled because he did not want to see them. He fled because he anticipated that if he preached to Nineveh, and if they turned to God, that God would forgive not. So he's furious. God says to him, well to be up. And look how Jonah responds. Look at what he says to God. Nothing. That? Jonah gave God the cold. I thought Jonah was a new man, right? I think this is a warning to us that that we can do all the right things on the outside still have hearts that are misaligned with God's. And I think what we see in this passage in particular that one of the greatest tests of whether our hearts are aligned with God or not is if we love our neighbor. Like, we could, we could come to church every week, and that's good. That's very good. But our hearts could still be out of line with God's if we don't love our neighbor. 
We could give generously, and that's good. We could go on mission trips, and that's good. But if but our hearts could still be out of line with God if we don't love our neighbor. We could worship God with expression and pour out our hearts, but our hearts could still be out of line with God if we don't love our neighbor. Jonah's heart was out of line with God. So we see him walk out of the city. He's grumbling to himself. This is bogus. Blah, 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 blah. I can't believe it. Blah, 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 blah. And then he sets up shop. It's like a stakeout. He wants to see if he's changed God's mind. He wants to see if maybe his prayer, like, maybe God was like, you know what, Jonah, you're right. I should judge them. So he's going to wait. He's going to wait to see how God answers his prayer. And so he builds this tent outside the city. It's very hot. And one thing you have to know is um, seminary-type folks like Jonah and myself aren't always the most practical people. Um, And so the tent isn't very good. It's not keeping the sun out very well. It's kind of like uh, a very impractical assembly of a tent. He's, he's not blocking out the shade very well, so God does something to kind of teach him a lesson, to show him, to help him see things from God's perspective. And so God causes this plant to grow above him and give him shade. And he loves the plant. Because all of a sudden, he's relieved from that hot, scorching sun. He loves it. It says it made him exceedingly glad. Oh, oh, plant, I love you. And then, the next day, God sends a bug. And the bug nibbles on the stem of that plant, and it withers. And Jonah lost it. He gets so mad, he says to God again, God, I would rather you take my life. I do not want to go on living like this. You see, God had made it intensely hot and it was beating down on him. So he's just like, take my life now. In fact, scholars say that what he says right here could probably be translated like a cuss word towards God. God says to him, you do well to be angry about the plant? Jonah says, Yes, I do well to be angry. Darn angry. Some of you thought I might say it. He's mad. And then God uses this. God says to him, Jonah, you care about the well-being of this plant. But you didn't create this plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't raise it and cause it to grow. How about Nineveh? Shouldn't I care for Nineveh? And the implication is that God did for Nineveh what Jonah had not done for the plant. In other words, that God created each of those people. That he handpicked their DNA, be unique. That he breathed life into their souls. And then he raised them like someone would cause a plant to grow. That he was there every day of their lives. And the plant, it was here in one day and gone another, but that these people were far more than that to God. 
that their souls had infinite worth, that they were precious to him. He says, don't you think I should care about them? You care about this plant. You didn't create it. You didn't cause it to grow. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Shouldn't I care about these people who are so precious to me and made in my image? That's the implication. And it's a unique glimpse at the heart of God. You see how he cares for people. Even people who were ugly towards him, like me. You see his heart towards people. He wants them to be in relationship with him. He says they don't know their right hand from their left. What that's probably talking about is spiritual blindness. They're walking around with spiritual questions. And he's the answer. He wants to be in relationship with them. Isn't that amazing? Like we know. We know that God doesn't need a relationship. That he is, his needs are met. He's perfectly satisfied in himself. But here's a, a glorious, beautiful truth. He wants for us to be in a He even weeps for us. And if you think that's too strong, Jesus was the manifestation of who God is. And he looked out on a city one day, Jerusalem, a week before he was going to die. He wept for Jerusalem. He wept because Jerusalem had rejected him. So God weeps. He wants us to know him like that. Do you see how precious we are to God? Do you see how God sees Nineveh. And that, that's the note that this passage ends on. How God sees this great city. And so here we are. In the middle of a great city. Thousands of years later. And the question for us is how do we see our surroundings? And in order to guide our response, what we're going to do is is look at, even a little more closely, the two responses, the two main responses that we see in this passage to guide our own response. First is the response of the Ninevites, and then we're going to look even more closely at the response of Jonah. So let's look back and zoom in to the response of the Ninevites. What we see from the Ninevites is true repentance. And some of you are thinking, how does that have, what does that have to do with seeing our surroundings? Just hold on, bear with me, this will relate to how we see our surroundings. We learn from the Ninevites about true repentance. And we see at least three aspects of true repentance. Repentance means feeling sorrow and turning around. And they show us three aspects of true repentance. Number one, it's immediate. Look really quick at... at um, At verse 4 of chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Part of what is being emphasized by that is Jonah hadn't even got throughout the whole city, and immediately the people were already responding to God. They didn't wait until the message got to the king. They didn't wait until the king's official decree. Immediately, they were responding to this message. And I think this is important for us to hear. Because sometimes 
we can put repentance off and it fades. I've experienced that. I have I've experienced that even sitting in these seats and, and heard from some of our other preachers and I just feel that sting in my heart and I know that I want to deal with God about something, but then I put it off. And it's not the same. Even on a human level, it reminds me of what Jesus said. He says when you're going to the altar with somebody else and on the way you discover that you have something against your brother or your sister, turn around and immediately go and be right with them. You see, don't even wait until you go to worship. Immediately make it right. Your repentance is immediate. Imagine that um, someone stole something very precious from you, and it was a close friend, and you called them out on it, called them on the phone and say, hey, I know that you stole this thing. And they said, okay, I did. I stole it. Uh, what are you doing three weeks from now on Tuesday at 4.30? Because I would really like to say that I'm sorry. It doesn't work. You see, repentance is immediate. And that's what we see in the Ninevites. Number two, the first it's immediate. Number two, it's physical. In other words, the people got their bodies involved. That's what they, they fasted and put on sackcloth. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. You see, it's deliberately showing what they did with their bodies. These are cultural expressions. I'm not expecting us to put on burlap sacks and go like burn some fire in the, in the fire pit in the backyard and put ashes on ourselves. But really what the point is, they got their bodies involved in their repentance. And uh, I think this is something that we can learn from too. You know, uh, studies show that when you read through Scripture, the Hebrew people really saw a unity in who we are. It wasn't until thousands of years later that the, that the Greek thinking started to dice up body, mind, and soul. The Greek people saw it all as, or the Hebrew people saw it all as one. In other words, what happens in our body impacts our faith. They saw that. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, as the Hebrew people were worshiping, their hands were raised, or they were bowing, or they were face on the ground, or they were clapping, or they were dancing. I mean, if we traveled back in time to an Old Testament Hebrew prayer service, it would probably put us to shame. So can I be real with, with you? I've been to weddings with some of you guys. You guys can move. And yet sometimes we get to worship and we're like, Be thou my vision. And I really do think that our bodies impact our faith. So I would even, even to make it practical, I would even like to see us bow sometimes. Why? Because we're trying to be like this church? Or because we're trying to be like this church? We can learn from other churches, and we should. 
But somebody help me. We are good news. We are good news. Bible church. That means we're just trying to be biblical. And if Scripture tells us that our bodies impact our faith, then that's what we should seek to do. And that's what we see from the Ninevites. Or the Ninevites, yes, the Ninevites. You know, uh, earlier this week, uh, one evening, Lisa and I were praying. It was late in the evening. And um, I felt this, like, spiritual tickle in my heart that we should bow together and pray. But it was like 11.15 at night. We were both in our recliners, and I was just like, eh, well, whatever, let's pray. So Lisa's praying, and all of a sudden we hear something right outside of our window that to me sounds like an AK-47. It was like, so we stopped for a second, and then she kept praying, and then it was my turn to pray, and I'm praying, and all of a sudden it's like right outside of our window, it's like, Pow, 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 pow. And so we get on the ground like face is on the ground like this immediately. And then we listen a little bit more. And we hear a crackle. So we knew it was fireworks. So there we are laying on the ground. And then we look at one another and we're like, well, we just keep praying like this. And we did. We finished it off. And it was a reminder that our bodies impact our faith. You know when my best times of prayer are? When I wake up in the morning and I run, and then I get coffee, and then I walk back and pray. It's because my body is engaged, and my mind is alert. Lisa's best time praying are while she's running. I can't do that because while I'm running, all I'm thinking is, this is torture, this is torture, this is torture. But for some of you, that might work. The point is, our bodies have a part to play, even in our repentance. Okay, lastly, their response was practical. Look at the uh, second half of verse 8 in chapter 3. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. In other words, they were not just saying sorry. They were seeking to change their behavior because that's what true repentance is. Some of us, when we were kids and we did something wrong, our parents said, say you're sorry, and we're like, sorry. That's not a real apology. Or sometimes when we apologize, it's because someone has caught us in something that we did, and we know we should say we're sorry, so we say to them, I'm sorry that you got offended. That's not a real apology either. That's saying, I want you to get off my back. A real apology comes with the sense that I want to change. Not that I'll get it perfect, but if I'm really sorry, I want to change what I'm doing. And if we're really sorry before God, we will want to change what we're doing. And I'm not talking about struggling with sin. Because struggling is just that. It's a struggle. You're fighting to resist it. You're doing whatever it takes. And if we're saying we're sorry, we should be willing to keep struggling and ask ourselves, is there more that I can do? Is there more help that I can get? Do I need to get drastic? Do I need to cancel the Internet? Do I need to cut off this relationship? Do I need to change jobs? Whatever it takes, that's the struggle. I'm talking about when we say we're sorry, but we're like, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. That's not true repentance. What the Ninevites show us is that true repentance comes with a desire to change. It's practical. 
So it's immediate, it's physical, and it's practical. That's what we learn from them about what repentance before God looks like. And now we're going to shift our focus a bit and learn from Jonah. We see from the the Ninevites the example of of true true repentance. We see from Jonah the example of an uncaring attitude. And we see this by way of contrast. The first contrast that we see is actually when we, I'm going to move through this quick because we want to get to what, where we're going. It's when we zoom out from the book and we realize that the, that the Hebrew people loved parallelism. They loved making parallels, whether little or big. And this whole book is written in parallel. So chapter three is a parallel. Chapter one is a parallel to chapter three. And that means chapter two is a parallel to chapter four. In chapter two, Jonah is in the belly of a whale. And he prays to God and then rejoices that he is delivered from disaster. In chapter 4, Jonah prays to God and then he's absolutely upset that the Ninevites are there. See the difference? He wanted mercy for himself, but not for those people. Second contrast builds on that. It's chapter 4, verse 1. When the Ninevites repented... Jonah was angry. And yet that's the same word used in chapter 3, verse 9, which which talks about God turning from his anger. So God, on the one hand, turns from his anger, and Jonah, on the other hand, becomes angry. And then the third contrast in his prayer. Why is he angry? He's angry because he does not want those people forgiven, and yet he knows that God does. So on the one hand, God is extending his forgiveness. And on the other hand, Jonah is, is extending judgment. He doesn't care about those people. He doesn't love those people. Fourth contrast has to do with the plant. Jonah is completely upset because the plant withered. And the reason why? Because this plant was giving him comfort. That's why he cared for the well-being of the plant. He cared for his own well-being. And the painful irony here is brought out by one scholar. He says, Jonah is filled with compassion regarding a mere plant, yet remains hard-hearted towards the entire population of a city. He shows concern for one small item in God's creation, yet fails to care for a large mass of people who, like Jonah, were made in the divine image. He does not feel compassion for all those people. And God says, Shouldn't I pity them? Shouldn't I have compassion for them? So you see the contrast? It's all one big divide between Jonah's heart and God's heart. Jonah's uncaring attitude and God's compassionate. And then the story ends open-ended. And most people think it's because we're supposed to provide the response. That we're supposed to look at this and say, how will I respond? Will I be small-hearted like Jonah or big-hearted like God? And um, and we're going to wrap this up now. But I just have to tell you that last week working through this passage and going through it and then working through the commentaries by the end of it, I honestly had to get on my knees and um, come before the Lord and just say, God, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry uh, for the ways in which I have been uncaring towards the people all around me, the thousands of people, and I've been more concerned with my own comfort than the well-being of all these people. As another scholar said, a Jonah lurks in the heart of every Christian. So I want to think about that individually. But as I was praying through this passage this week, really what I want to think about is I want to think about this passage as a church. How are we living this out as a church? And, I'm, and you might think it's weird that I'm down here, but I'm down here because I'm really wanting you to know that I'm not uh, standing in judgment of anyone, but I'm with you in this. And I really want us to ask, do we care about the people around us? These thousands of people around us, how do we see them? Do we see them as God's, at the way God sees them? Such care and such compassion, seeing their infinite worth, seeing how precious they are, or are we more concerned with our own comfort? A few weeks ago, I, I was at a dinner event, and I was sitting next to this real estate developer. Um, he doesn't know Jesus yet, and uh, he's, a lot of his work is focused in Logan Square. He's one of the people who are making these big, fancy places in Logan Square, and uh, we had this fascinating conversation. He found out that I was one of the pastors here, and he looked at me almost in shock. And then he said, we're noticing that the demographic of people moving into this neighborhood are not religious at all. That's what he said to me, that they don't have interest in church or in God, really. Then he said, what's your church doing about it? Man, so I said, I, I think I said something like, well, you know, it's important that we are serving and building relationships. And we talked about that, but, but are we? And I think incredible things are happening here, guys. I think there's some incredible examples of people serving and building relationships. But I think this is an area we can move into more. And so, I want to ask that we do something to close. I want to ask that we uh, learn from the Ninevites a little bit. And that we would take an opportunity to say we're sorry to God. Uh, because, Because God can help us be all the more caring towards the people around us. Show that. Because love uh, looks like action so that God could lead us in being even more caring towards the people in this community, seeing them how he sees them. So I want to encourage us, if, if you're there with me in that, that, we, uh, that our response would be immediate, that our response would be physical, and that our response would be practical. So if you're with me in that, um, I'll ask that as I pray that you would uh, Put your body, get your body involved and stand. Stand with me as a way of saying, God, I'm sorry, and let's, let's move into this more. Let's care for our community more. And um, listen, so 
Some of you might be thinking, uh, what about the visitors here? <laughs> and uh, listen, if you're a visitor here today, I just want to say um, uh, welcome to a church that is imperfect, but a church that really wants to follow God as closely as possible and are just saying to God, God, help us because we want to be more loving. And um, we want you to be a part of that. And I hope you see our hearts, but I hope even more that if you don't know God, that you would see his heart today and how he desires for you to be in a relationship with him. In fact, he desires it so much that he paid the highest price to make it possible by sending his son to die on a cross, to literally experience utter darkness and separation from God, that we might have the opposite, oneness with God. And all we have to do is do like the Ninevites and believe God. Believe what he's done and turn to him and receive that. So I appreciate all you standing. And um, let's pray. God, we come before you. And... um, Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we have been uncaring towards the people around us that you love so much, that are so precious to you, that you created, that you breathed life into. And God, sorry for the the ways we've been focused on our own comfort, the stuff that happens inside these walls only, and how... Lord, that at times we've forgotten what happens outside these walls. So God, help us to see our surroundings more as you see them. To feel towards the people around us more how you feel about them. Lord, help us to love in action and in truth. We're coming before you today and just saying that we're sorry and that we need you and we're asking you to help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.